This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. And this week, Thursday, is the day uh, that we commemorate Buddha's death. We call it Nirvana Day or Pari Nibbana. Pali, that means the final extinguishing. Nirvana is the act of blowing out, like blowing out a candle. And commemorating Buddha's death gives us a chance to confront the issue of what Buddha's teaching really was. Sometimes it was confusing. Buddha taught that as much as death is real, capable, that there is no death. He taught that not because we would go to heaven or be reincarnated, but because there are no separate individuals to begin with. Buddha taught that what we think of as self, as individual, is really just kind of a bunch of functions and experiences that come together temporarily. He called them skandhas. These are the elements of a human being. Bodies, feelings like likes and dislikes, perceptions, intentions, and consciousness. He taught that we are nothing but these five kinds of functions, which are loosely coherent when we're alive. Loosely coherent enough so that we can ignore the fact that they're not under our control. They're constantly changing. They're dependent on everything else on earth, all of which is constantly changing. We can ignore all those things and pretend that we have enduring selves. And we are deeply attached to this idea. We are separate and independent from each other, even though there's not one moment in which we haven't been anything, in which we have been anything but the great earth itself. It's not the way we normally think. And Buddha's teaching gives us a chance to encounter the unfamiliar, to do the unfamiliar. Maybe you're drawn to it. Maybe you wanna push it away. My advice, lean into the unfamiliar. Sometimes we refer to the Buddha Dharma as that which is rarely met with. As all the unfamiliar things Buddha leads us into. When you think about it, 
Everything we've done this evening has been unfamiliar, at least in the way we conduct our everyday lives. We sit upright on the floor without moving, chanting, bowing. Buddha had a radical view of reality, a view that challenged the very roots of our thinking. He had peculiar ideas about who we were and how we should live our lives. Avoiding all harmful actions, doing all good, saving the numberless beings. Who would make such vows? Sure, we say it's, it's good to avoid harming others. But do we mean it? Buddhist teachings cut across the grain of society. He took up the great tradition of an, uh, ahimsa, sorry, eschewing all forms of violence. Ahimsa means um, not harming. Not to kill is not unfamiliar in spiritual traditions. In fact, it's an ancient tradition that was uh, present long before Buddha came on the scene. But just because we've heard it doesn't mean that we uh, know what it's like to live it. Killing is pretty much baked in to human society. For food, for money, for land, for sport, for opinions, for religions. Last week, we, we touched on that horrible war that's going on in Gaza. How difficult. Confronting humanity's inclinations towards war is pretty difficult, even for Buddhas. Once, when the Koliyas, a, a neighboring tribe next to Buddha's uh, tribe, the Shakyans, once the Koliyas were invading the Shakyans, and Buddha positioned himself under a dead tree right at the Shakyan border, and right in the path of the invading army. And he sat there completely at peace in the blazing sun. The army approached, it was led by the prince, and the prince stopped. He recognized the Buddha as a holy man. He went up to him and he said, uh, Good sir, why are you sitting here? Why not sit over there under those trees that are fully leafed out where you can be cool and have shade? And Buddha told him that because he loved his homeland, 
even this spot was cool and refreshing. This made a big impression on the prince of the Colias. And he turned his army around and he didn't invade the Shafkans. But later, he did. And some people pleaded with Buddha again to do his magic and turn the army around. But Buddha realized that uh, the Kaliyas had already decided that the teaching of nonviolence was irrelevant. And there was nothing more that he could do. It's hard for Buddhas to confront our tendencies towards violence. If, even before I met Buddhism in any substantial way, I was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. This was pretty familiar to my family. We're kind of conservative, you know, but pretty kind and gentle. Uh, my father was in the army during World War II, not in combat. Uh, but he never made a concerted effort to talk me out of my conscientious objector stance. He did tell me that he thought that being in the army was a useful experience. He said, got him to get along with all kinds of people who were very different from him. You could say that he saw the benefit in facing some of the unfamiliar. But some of the things I did in the 60s and 70s were maybe a bridge too far for him. So when I went off to talk to my draft board about my conscientious objector claim. And uh, they agreed. After they examined me, they said, okay, you can, instead of going into the army, you could do alternative service. You can work in a hospital or do some, some work like that for two years that you would have spent in the army. So I came home and my father was waiting for me. He'd opened the door for me, waiting, you know. And I told them, they said yes. And I'd never seen him so shocked and confused. He was like speechless. I had to tell him, this is good news. And you know, coming from his frame of reference, from the frame of reference against a war to end great evil, being an objector was unthinkable to him. And it took him a moment to embrace the unfamiliar. Buddha actually had a very straightforward teaching about 
how to put an end to humans harming each other. He taught that if we actually lived in the present moment, if we allowed things to be just as they were, without all of our prejudices, and without all of the stories that we tell about them, that would be the end to violence. He said, that would be the end to the taking up of rods and weapons. Just that. Just to be present with the way things are, not with the stories that we tell about them. You can kind of see this, right? I said to you, uh, let's go invade Canada. You would at least want to hear a story that justified it. To be, you know, they talk funny or, or something to, to justify us taking up arms against Canadians. Buddha said, that's all we have to do. We have to cut out our stories about the world and all violence would cease immediately. just to be with what is right here. Zazen is our practice of always orienting ourselves to what is right here. It's the basic principle, you know, of mindfulness, Zazen, even any compassionate action is to see what is right here. One of our ancient teachers asked about the core of his teaching and said, just this. Is it? There were times in Buddha's life when he was daunted by the difficulty of teaching his unfamiliar Dharma. Who wanted to hear that suffering is ended not by getting what we want, but by wanting what we've got? Ajahn Chah, who we've been reading in our Wednesday study group, had a wonderful way of teaching about this. We could call it the parable of the crying maggot. And his, his story is this, that two friends die. And one is immediately reborn as a God in heaven. And the other is reborn as a maggot in a pile of dung. And the one who's reborn as a god uses his uh, supernatural powers to find his friend, who's now a maggot. And he goes to him. And he causes him to, to they recognize each other. And it's a wonderful reunion. And the maggot says to the God, how are things where you are? And the God says, oh, they're so wonderful. You should get there sometime. It's so wonderful. Whenever I want something, it appears right away. But the maggot started weeping. 
when he heard this. And he said, really, you should come here. I'm here and everything I ever want is always right here. I don't even have to have the suffering that comes with wanting something else. It's always right here. The maggot, who never had to experience wanting anything, knew that he had gotten the better deal. Because there is suffering that inevitably comes from wanting something else, something that is not here. Liberation is not getting what we crave. Liberation is when craving ceases. So we have this word nirvana. And nirvana means the extinguishing of craving. Buddha's first teaching was that we are never satisfied. There is dukkha, dissatisfaction. Why are we always dissatisfied? You know, we all want something. It might not be such a problem, except the things we want are unreliable. They actually have no self. There's nothing solid about them. They're not the way we think they are. Everything is just skandhas. Everything is just made up of other things. And nothing is singular, everything is multiple. So everything has elements that we won't like and we'll be dissatisfied when we notice them. And the other problem with wanting something is that we are unreliable. Our wants are always changing. So when we want uh, some cookies, you know, we buy a bag of Oreos and we eat one and it's great and we eat another and it's still pretty good, but pretty soon we don't want Oreos anymore. And the other reason why there is dissatisfaction is that the things we want are impermanent. Whatever we acquire will not last. So therefore, our craving will never cease. We will always be in this position of saying, I don't really want this, I want that. Something else, something that's not this here. But Zen practice is ending suffering by turning toward this here. When we do zazen, we don't do it to become enlightened. We do it because it is enlightenment. You could say that our practice is the practice of satisfaction with this. Gratitude for what is right here. It's the practice of enough.
Buddha taught that craving was our illness. But once our illness is cured, we can then see clearly. We can open to this life. David White said, we can open to this life we have refused again and again until now. What the world offers us at every moment is the only life there is. We can open to what is here or we can reject our life. Buddha's Parinibbana, his final extinguishing, was his complete acceptance of birth and death. Opening to life is opening to death too. The maggot found a life that was almost without suffering because there was no longer any craving. We should ask, when craving ceases, what is the suffering that remains? Ajahn Chah's story of the crying maggot tells us that when our personal craving no longer dominates our consciousness, then we cannot help but perceive the suffering of others who are still caught up in their endlessly cycling dissatisfaction. When the needs of the ego self are quieter, that's when we can hear the cries of the world. Maybe our suffering has lessened, maybe it's even gone. But then we are naturally drawn to feeling the suffering of others into reaching out to help. We might encourage others to take up this unfamiliar practice of ours. We might offer whatever we have that might be helpful, whether it's wisdom or zazen instruction or a shoulder to cry on or just a helping hand in doing some tasks, changing a tire. Maybe we adopt a dog from a shelter. Maybe we feed the birds. Maybe we water the plants. Maybe we even learn to live with each other. I was once at the Art Institute and I saw a teacher, you know, one of the Art Institute instructors with like a first grade class of kids. And the kids were all sitting on the floor in front of a Buddha statue and the teacher was explaining about Buddhism. And she said, Buddha taught that we should be kind to all living beings, even spiders. 
It was the best Dharma talk I'd ever heard. <laughs> we should help the spiders. And we should practice like maggots in shit, not wanting anything but what is right here. The unsurpassed Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million campus. Mm -hmm.